Thank you for your attention. Thank you for coming. Uh, great conference, great idea to have it. It's amazing how much uh, uh, the papers interconnect with one another and bring out aspects of Kant's political philosophy that uh, are less familiar. At the outset, uh, I'm uh, selecting part of the paper because I don't want to take up the whole of the time with it. At the outset, I want to state very dogmatically that for Kant, knowledge serves an emancipatory purpose for the whole of humankind. Of course, this emancipatory purpose has to be mediated by those who produce knowledge, but they are not, in virtue of their tasks, subservient to those in established positions of social and political authority. Knowledge for Kant should be in service to itself, or more correctly, those that create and disseminate it, and not to establish power. As Kant puts it in the Petrol Peace, I think, but the possession of power unavoidably corrupts the free judgment of reason. Kant envisaged a clear division of labor between those who govern and those who research and educate. We create knowledge to inform ourselves and the public. Kant encourages everyone to dare to be wise. As he puts it, have courage to make use of your own understanding is the motto of the Enlightenment. Knowledge has its own purpose, which is to permit the human being's emergence from a self-incurred immaturity. May, knowledge may be of a wider purpose, may have a wider purpose in other contexts, but these purposes are not part of its essence. Uh, I want to draw attention now, I mean, it's clear, obviously, from the papers we have, but it really strikes me as very remarkable how hostile Kant is to colonialism. Uh, there, appear, there are two crucial points in Kant's political philosophy, I think, where he touches on the issue of the overseas expansion of European society, and its impact on the non-European world. The most striking occurrence is in Perpetual Peace, where he speaks of the implications of his third definitive article concerning cosmopolitanism for the way in which Af Asian, African, American, and Australasian people should be approached by the visitor. Here, Kant makes it patently clear that this approach should not be one of superiority, but that of equal inhabitants of the globe's surface, and it should be governed by right or law. The second notable instance where the, the question of colonialism is raised in Kant's political writings is where he speaks in the metaphysics of morals of how it might be possible for European visitors to establish settlements and property rights, property rights in lands beyond their territories. It's clear from these two instances that Kant doesn't have a high regard for the European colonialism of his day and has a model of, much, of a much higher standard of behaviour that in his mind should in the future govern relations between economically and technically more advanced nations and other non-European peoples. I think I could add to these two instances of him talking about colonialism. Also, there are some very interesting comments and notes in his preparatory notes to the Petrol Peace, which uh, Pauline also drew attention to. And I think we all use the same sources, haven't we, in, uh, in, in doing that. We're all looking at very much the same passages. And I think the interesting thing is the different conclusions we all draw from the same passages. These progressive views on the limitation and regulation of European expansion occur in two of Kant's later writings, 1795 and 1797. We have to accept that Kant didn't always express the most powerful views on non-European peoples and their relative political standing. He appears in his earlier writings to have shared some of the prejudices of his age about the endowments and abilities of non-white races. And then there's this often quoted example where he quotes Hume and uh, black people. We don't need to go into these unsavory things, but everybody's read them and come across them, I'm sure. These opinions are indeed evident in his anthropology from a pragmatic point of view, which appeared around the same time as Petrol Peace and the Metaphysics of Morals. Robert Berlusconi and Paul Kleinger appointed to Kant's apparent racist proclivities at certain stages in his intellectual development. 
can't actually, uh, I don't recall where, but in one of his letters, I, which I've read over the years, there was a comment about uh, <coughs> uh, he'd been given a, a picture of a Jewish friend or colleague, and he makes a silly comment in the letter to a friend about the appearance of So, you know, the, he, he had these natural uh, proclivities that people of his age shared. For Bernus Coney, this colours his attitude to Kant's philosophy as a whole, whereas for Kleinkeld it represents an episode in Kant's intellectual development which he leaves behind him in his final political writings. Kant's less guarded remarks on the character of peoples and races seem to suggest there was occasionally a hiatus between the opinions Kant held and expressed in his contemporary academic and social circles and the full implications of the doctrinal ideas of his political philosophy. So it's really, uh, I'm interested in those really. I think that it's, uh, you know, if we go into what he thought in his occasional moments and when he was off guard and uh, talking to friends, well, you know, scratch the surface and maybe there was some uncomfortable and attitudes to be found there. But we really are interested in the doctrinal implications of his main ideas. Arguably the model for European expansion had been set by John Locke in his political writings, especially in his two treatises. Locke appears to have expressed few qualms about the European peoples imposing their will upon the non-white world. Locke's labour theory of property fully endorses the industrious white settlers who bring into cultivation previously neglected territories and add to nature's endowments by cultivating skillfully the previously until land. As I put it elsewhere, colonialism and the expansion of European market society need not be added to Locke's theory of property. They are already an integral part of his doctrine. Locke considers colonialism a practice that increases the common stock of mankind by <coughs> developing and exploiting the productive capacities of the earth. He's got then this lovely phrase, thus in the beginning of all the world was America, and more so than it is now, for no such thing as money was anywhere known. And what does Locke mean when he speaks of America in this way, introducing the rights of property? Makes me hot speaking about Kant. <laughs> <laughs> The America he has in mind has inland vacant places where man or family are in the state they were at first peopling of the world by the children of Adam or Noah. In such a condition, a man may be permitted to plough, sow and reap without being disturbed upon land he has no other title to but only is making use of it. <clears throat> in this position, the measure of property nature has well set by the extent of man's labour and the conveniency of life. It's very uh, appealing stuff, this. In this original condition, an individual is entitled to own what he can cultivate and use so long as this didn't deprive others of a similar opportunity. This was a doctrine that was well suited to the pattern of European expansion in the 17th century, where the world is still like inland America, the biblical story still holds. At the beginning, Cain, Cain may take as much ground as he could till and make it his own land and yet leave enough for able sheep to feed on. Thus, Locke accepts that the property of labour should be able to overbalance the community of land. It is labour that transforms out of their natural condition and gives value to them. And although America, through its vast and exploited territories, represents an enormous bounty to humankind, its present occupants cannot be regarded as being in a fortuitous condition as a result of it. The American Indians are in a deplorable state. There can be, for Locke, there can be no clear demonstration of anything that several nations of the Americans are of this, who are rich in land and poor in all the comforts of life, whom nature, having furnished as liberally as any other people with the materials for plenty, yet for want of improving it by labour, have not one hundredth part of the conveniences we enjoy. 
The lack of industry the native Indians has shown make their title to the territories extremely weak, and where they have not settled in numbers, Locke clearly sees no hindrance to Europeans creating for themselves a title to that land and its fruits through their labor. And then if you see the end results of this, where the few pitiful reservations of American Indians are still left, where uh, alcoholism is generally a way of life, it really is dreadful end of story, so to speak, to the Lockean account. If we look in the passages in Kansresh there, what can we in contrast learn? The passages are very difficult to interpret, since their main object is to look at the ways in which property can be acquired in a non-civil condition. I mean, this is ironic, isn't it, that we are looking at a question which Kant actually almost treated as an aside, but it's so important to what he says that it's worth following through. Kant has an original right of the common possession of the Earth's surface, which, because it is a globe or a sphere, requires that human beings has finally put up with being near one another and cannot disperse infinitely. Originally, no one had a greater right than any other to be on a place on the Earth. This right of common possession entitles us to visit all parts of the Earth, but it doesn't entitle us automatically to settle there or to take possession of things. Kant doesn't regard the Earth, then, with a colonialist's eye. He doesn't accept a right to acquire what we can usefully exploit or take over territories that may appear empty or underpopulated. I think it's very important that there is this vision, which uh, Sankas pointed out in the 18th century, of the alternative to the actual course that things took. You know, that we assume that the whole of Western and European civilization bought into this idea that the Earth was like America. For Kant, though, we, talk, we must talk above all of the right to visit. It's the right to visit all parts of the Earth. It's the right to seek contact, but not necessarily to acquire. The authorization that a foreign newcomer has upon entering a new territory doesn't extend beyond the conditions which make it possible to see commerce with the old inhabitants. So Kant treats the old or the previous inhabitants or the, as, as with respect. The object of such contact is to extend peaceable relations among individuals and nations. Kant favors strongly then the heightened interaction and commerce among people that occurs through exploration and travel. The bringing of distant parts of the world into relation with one another, because ultimately these relations can become publicly lawful. His final objective in furthering such interaction is that the human race is brought ever closer to a cosmopolitan constitution. So, is he a friend of EasyJet? I think perhaps he might be. Except it would have to be a global EasyJet. <laughs> This is clearly a perspective that is influenced by the fact that Kant is Euro European. As a lifelong inhabitant of Königsberg, an important port in the Baltic Sea, Kant evidently had the outward-going attitude of a seafaring community. But it can hardly be claimed that the, that the overseas travel was an exclusive activity of northern European people, even in those days. There's evidence of sea travel and commerce in all parts of the world. Indeed, arguably, non-European peoples can be seen as far greater travelers and seafarers than Europeans if you think of the Indonesians and the movements in the Pacific. The perspective that Kant adds that arguably has a European tinge is that these journeys and contacts should ultimately be regulated by law. Kant's discussion of overseas trade and travel in his time is in many respects decidedly anti-European. His vision of a cosmopolitan constitution that properly regulates contact amongst peoples and so maintains a harmonious relationship amongst them. 
if com- one compares with this idea of a cosmopolitan constitution, the un- inhospitable behavior of civilized, especially commercial states of our part of the world, the injustice they show in visiting foreign lands and peoples, which with them is tantamount to conquering, goes to horrifying lengths. Kant maintains that existing inhabitants of distant lands should, should be treated with respect. If they do not share the same productive practices and commercial activities of the European world, this provides no justification for sweeping away their rights. This is precisely what occurred, as he puts it in the... Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with this quote from uh, Perpetual Peace. When America, when America, the Negro countries, the Spice Islands, Iceland, the Cape, and so forth were discovered, they were to them countries belonging to Rowans, since they counted the inhabitants as nothing. The members of the European expeditions that arrived in these territories didn't behave like visitors, but saw themselves as lords of all they surveyed. The territories were taken as a gift of God to them to be used as they pleased. Where the European traders met with the resistance, they still held by their divine right to do as they saw fit with what they discovered. Kant is aware that the apparent tragic condition of the territories acquired by the European races is not the fault of the native inhabitants itself. In many respects, Kant sees the colonialists as bringing with them the worst aspects of European civilization. In many respects, they were representatives of, well, the criminal classes were sent wholesale to Australia, weren't they? Kant's view, no prejudice meant now, but current Australians, please. <laughs> Kant's view is not that the European invaders have much to teach the native peoples, but rather a great deal can be learned by looking at the response of the more astute non-European countries to their Western intruders. China and Japan, I mean, it, it's important, I think, to think of China and Japan, really, for Kant as model uh, what we would now call underdeveloped countries or non-European countries. And they'd experimented with such visitors. They'd therefore wisely allowed access but not entry to them. And the Japanese had taken the sterner step of allowing access only to a single European people, the Dutch, but excluding them like prisoners from community with the natives. Thus the hospitality that is required by cosmopolitan law cannot be transformed into the tolerance of boorish and aggressive behavior which turns the visited territories into dependencies and mirrors of the worst conditions of the visiting states themselves. For Kant, colonialism helps fuel the flames of European wars and renders Africa, India and the Americas into the sites of endless indigenous wars which have their origin in the greed of European traders. Contrary to the pretensions of these traders and settlers, non-Europeans have the same rights within their territories as Europeans have in their states. Their independence and difference has to be respected. Kant accepts without reservation the plurality of the human race and its constituent peoples. I leave out Sankar's quote, since we've spoken very well earlier on. Kant thus reverses the rosy picture which the colonialists often mistakenly give themselves of their role. Kant is aware that the settlers do themselves and the natives no favours by their unilateral acquisition. The colonialist self-image is portrayed movingly by Fanon, Franz Fanon. As Fanon puts it, this is how colonialists see themselves. On the unconscious plane, colonialism therefore didn't seek to be considered by the native as a gentle, loving mother who protects her child from a hostile environment, but rather as a mother who unceasingly restrains a fundamentally perverse offspring from managing to commit suicide and from giving rein to its evil instincts. The colonial mother protects her child from itself, from its physiology, its biology, and its own unhappiness, which is, very, which is its very essence. Indeed, of the colonizers appearing 
Instead of the colonizers appearing as the bringers of civilization, Kant treats them as bringing all the evils of present civilization. Far from thinking that colonialism came to lighten their darkness, Kant portrays the colonizers as motivated by the basis of aims, greed and the desire for domination. Far from thinking the settlers were to leave, if the, if the settlers were to leave, they would at once fall back into barbarism, degradation and bestiality, Kant sees resistance by the native population to European incursion as the path towards maintaining civilization. Section now where I argue that Kant's theory of property is entirely contrary to Locke's, and so this makes it firmly anti-colonial. We get an indication why Kant takes this strongly anti-colonial stand in the Metaphysics of Morals, where he discusses the acquisition of property by individuals. A good part of the first sections of the Doctrine of Right in the work are taken up with a question. The discussion of colonialism arises in section 415, where he concludes that something can be acquired conclusively only in a civil constitution. In a state of nature, it can be acquired, but only provisionally. Kant's deduction of property rights is opposed to Locke, since Kant doesn't believe it's possible to own an object simply by wresting it from nature or transforming nature to produce it. You can have possessions like that, but they wouldn't be property recognized by others. Kant, in other words, rejects Locke's labor theory of property. If you see the McPherson's book, uh, Locke's Possessive Individualism, do you know it at all? <laughs> you must read it, you love it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a critique of the acquisitive individualism of modern uh, uh, political theory, Hobbes Locke. It was a classic, but it seems to have fallen out of the, the uh, canon. Uh, Locke's labor theory of property suited the expansion of the influence of European countries that occurred in modern times very well. The license to acquire property in the state of nature provided a justification for seizing unproductive land and producing commodities in foreign lands. Kant's assertion that property cannot be attained in such a way that it needs, and that it needs the development of a settled civil society, first of all, with an united general will that can make laws, complicates the situation greatly. But Kant tackles this matter in a very interesting way. It looks at the question of the original acquisition of property from the standpoint of the European traveller set on a voyage of discovery and fruitful gain. When nature, no chance, but just our own will, brings us into the neighbourhood of a people that holds out no prospect of a civil union with it, we shouldn't be authorised to found colonies, by force it need be, in order to establish a civil union and bring these human beings, savages, he says, into a rightful condition as with the American Indians, the Hottentots, and the inhabitants of New Holland, or, which is not much better, to found colonies by fraudulent purchase of their land, and so become owners of their land, making use of our superiority without, without regard for their first possession. Kant finds the assumptions of the representatives of Europeans' powers to establish colonies all over the world entirely unacceptable. Imperialism holds no charm for him, and he finds no justification in law or morality for the practices of the major powers of his day. Kant concedes to Locke that from a historical and empirical standpoint, at one time, all the world was America, not settled and open to use by the original human inhabitants. However, Kant's not satisfied with this standpoint from an ethical and, meta and a metaphysical point of view. We can't treat the world as though it is a resource open to exploitation by whoever first hits upon its riches. In this he follows Rousseau, who wittingly mocks the pretensions of the Spanish conquistadores in seeking to take possession by fiat of the lands of Latin America. This is Rousseau, 
When Nunez Balboa, standing on the shore, took possession of the southern seas and all of South America in the name of the crown of Castile, was that enough to dispossess all its inhabitants and to exclude all the princes of the world? If it had been, then such ceremonies were repeated quite unnecessarily, and all the Catholic king had to do was from his council chamber all at once to take possession of the entire universe, except for afterwards subtracting it from his empire what the princes already possessed before. However much we've, we may fail, we're entitled to access and acquire it as it wills, since nature, which abhors a vacuum, seems to demand it, we'd be wrong in taking in this step. Property for Kant is a social relationship which requires the authority of a civil society and is not a simple relationship between one individual and nature. Indeed, even if greater expanses of land, this is Kant, greater expanses of land in other parts of the world which are now splendidly populated would remain forever uninhabited so that the end of the creation would be frustrated. Had not some individuals taken the lead and seized the land to capture its product, we cannot regard these original acts of appropriation as embodying justice. We can't adopting the Lockean justification for the original acquisition of property and the theory of colonialism that arises from it presents a veil of injustice which would sanction any means to good end. Alice calls this a Jesuitical argument of Kant's He's in no doubt that such a way of acquiring land is therefore to be repudiated. Well, this is the kind of negative role of dishonour of European uh, colonialism. So what's Kant's alternative? What's he proposing instead? And here I bring Marx into it, because uh, I think an interesting feature is, although, of course, Marx and Locke are at the opposite end politically, I think Marx, in, Marx in fact, takes very seriously the labour theory of property and it rolls into his account of communism and the kind of entitlement to taking over the means of production is connected to the fact that the workers generate the wealth, create the product, and so they're entitled to it. What then takes the place of this unilateral act of possession in Kant's political philosophy, the one that Bloch proposes through labour, through tilling the land? Kant acknowledges that the civil condition where, where property ownership safeguarded by the state is the one to be achieved, but he doesn't sanction the historically Lockean deployed means for achieving this end. Facts for him can't ground rights. So how then does he see the right of property and so original rights of acquisition as grounded? Kant's answer is that a united general will is required in advance of a rightful act of property acquisition and this united general will has to have as its aim the generation and maintenance of a civil commonwealth. This has to be envisaged, has not to be envisaged as an action that occurs at any point in time, but is rather the intellectual and moral presupposition of any property right. As the term united general will indicates, the assertion and observance of property rights must rely on the consent of others. Even in the absence of civil government, therefore, we have to presuppose that all others can consent to our holding an object taken from nature as our property. Where that consent is fact not forthcoming is a presumption in its favour. As to establish property rights in new territories where there is no civil society requires patience. Uh, to say a lot of things. The original inhabitants of a territory have to be regarded as the potential owners, even if they have not asserted that ownership in civil terms. It is they that have to take the necessary steps to form a civil condition. At best, visitors have the right to make contact with those inhabitants and seek commercial ties. 
There's no right to impose such ties on the original inhabitants. Their seeming negligence is their choice and so as to be recognized and not exploited. It's a bit like virtue at the individual level. You know, if people choose to behave badly from a, an ethical point of view, it's, it's something that they have to pull around themselves. Locke's scenario for the potential acquisition of colonial territories entirely ruled out for Kant. He unequivocally rejects the theory, labor theory of property. For Kant, the first working or in general transforming of a piece of land can furnish no title of acquisition to it. That is, possession of an accident that can provide no basis for rightful possession of the substance. What is mine or yours must instead be derived from ownership of the substance in accordance with the rule. This rule of rightful ownership has to be established through the united general will that is presupposed as the basis of the civil society. The rule determines the rightful physical possession of an object and not the physical possession. The rule. It's a bit like if you find uh, you know, a five-pound note on the floor, well, your first instinct might be to think, well, it's lost, it's mine, I'll have it. But then it's hardly going to be a stable long-term solution if people take that approach. Yeah you've got an obligation to try to find the owner and return it. It appears that Kant's approach to the acquisition of property and so by implication new territories sidesteps the issue that lies at the heart of European colonial expansion. Although Locke's approach may in principle be the wrong one, it is far nearer to the approach adopted than anything we find in Kant's writings. European society expanded overseas through unilateral acquisition of the Lockean kind. Kant's argument in response appears to, to, to acknowledge this fact, but then to suggest that his own principal approach still needs to, apply, to be applied if the aggressive colonial past is to be overcome and be made good. Humankind needs to proceed differently from the way it has done in the past. Recognizing the wrongs of the past is part of this process, but equally a part of the process is adopting moral and rightful methods now for carrying out commercial relations with and trading with distant parts. It can be said for Kant that establishing universal and lasting peace constitutes not merely a part of the doctrine of right, but rather the entire final end of the doctrine within the limits of mere reason. For the condition of peace is alone that condition in which mine and what is yours for a multitude of human beings is secured under laws living in proximity to one another. Hence those who are united under a constitution, but the rule for this constitution as a norm for others cannot be derived from the experience of those who have hither found it to be their advantage. It must rather be deprived, derived a priori by reason from the idea of a rightful possession association of human beings under such a law. So the Kant sees a rightful acquisition only coming to a complete, uh, to a completion, a satisfactory moral and political completion when you have a global civil society where uh, states are no longer in a hostile relation to one another. Colonialism stands thoroughly condemned also by Marxist political philosophers. However, the condemnation takes on a different form that, than that presented by Kant. Modern colonialism, the expansion of European forms of government and economy, is derided by Kant of Marxists for its inhuman exploitation of native populations and anti-colonialist nationalist movements are offered enthusiastic sport, but an attitude of tolerance is shown towards the system in its early form and development. 
This is because the Marxist sees it as a necessary course of economic development that earlier primitive forms of economic relations should be replaced. So for them there's this necessary uh, process of stages from feudalism, from capitalism, from capitalism to socialism, and so the uh, non-European world must have capitalism imposed on it for it to fit into the picture of progress. Marxists condemn the lack of humanity shown to the original inhabitants of distant territories and they are prepared to join with Kant in deploring the violent actions of the conquering Europeans. But they provide an undercurrent of support for the process as it actually occurred by lauding capitalism as the more progressive economic system and stressing the inevitability of the violent breakdown of the previous forms of community and economy. The economic determinism of the theory of history that Marxists deploy undercuts their moral condemnation of colonialism and imperialism. It also sets the scene for the overthrow of colonialism primarily through violent means, which compounds the cycle of violence that brought about imperialism in the first place. Arguably, Marx glories too much in his contention that modern capitalism comes into existence dripping with blood. If money, according to Augier, comes into the world with a congenital bloodstain on one cheek, capital comes dripping from head to foot, from every pore with blood and dirt. The excellent documentation that Marx himself provides of the excesses of colonial expansion and rule is undermined by the apparent lesson that Kant draw, Marx, sorry, Marx draws from this sad history, namely that force is the midwife of every society pregnant with a new one. Kant wants to strike out in a different path which avoids the previous pattern of exploitation and the use of violence. He cannot embrace the revolutionary path that Marx proposes. He accepts but doesn't condone the arbitrary violence of the past that has found modern economic and political structure that's founded modern economic and political structure. And for Kant there cannot be a carte blanche for supposed progressive violence in the future. It's very interesting that historically that you know, Europe chose the Lockean method of expansion, and then Europe chose the Marxian way of trying to make it good, which in fact compounded the problem, or largely chose, not all Europeans were Marxists. Inspired by Marxist writings, Franz Fanon draws the conclusion in discussing the situation draws this conclusion in discussing the situation of the colonial occupation. That at the levels of individuals, violence is a cleansing force. It frees the natives from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction. It makes him fearless and restores his self-respect, providing he's not killed in the meanwhile. Even if the armed struggle has been symbolic and the nation is demobilized through a rapid movement of decolonization, people have the time to see that the liberation has been the business of each and all and the leader has no special merit. Spectacular and understandable as this declaration may be from the representative of an African nation subject to the cruelest colonial rule in Algeria, it repeats the general problem of the combination of Marxist historicism with moral outrage. Through the acceptance and deployment of revolutionary violent means, it negates the moral purpose of the anti-colonial movement. Here it's more likely that the Kantian might support Kandy's non-violent methods rather than Fanon's military campaigns in determining how best to bring an end to colonial expansion. I've not explored much of Gandhi's writings, but my impression is that, uh, what I, from what I've gathered in reading him, that uh, most of his approach would go along quite well with the Kantian approach. 
In writing in the 1790s, Kant was clearly more concerned about how to prevent new colonial acquisitions occurring than with restoring colonies wholly to their former inhabitants. His focus is more on creating a future peaceful worldwide civil society than ensuring that revenge is taken on all past wrongs. Kant also, at least in the case of China and Japan, credits the native inhabitants with more potential, good sense and industry than Marx was apparently prepared to record them. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx depicts an almost mechanistic process where he speaks of the bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even those barbarian nations, into civilization. The cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce, to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, that is, to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. Marx has a good turn of phrase, doesn't he? Although he's sympathetic to the plight of the non-European nation, he can't, Marx adopts a somewhat derogatory tone in speaking of their apparent abilities and potential. Some of the condescension of the prevailing political and economic system of the 19th century is carried over into Marx's description of how things changed with the rise to power of the middle class. Colonialism is not immediately good for humankind, but it is a necessary and ultimately beneficial stage. For Marx, the bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns. It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the ruler, and thus has rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life. Just as it made, you know, there's no tolerance of pastoral life here. Is there? <laughs> Just as it has made the country dependent on the town, so it has made the barbarian and semi-barbarian countries dependent on the civilized ones, nations of peasants and nations of bourgeois, the east and the west. Here Marx shows himself to be much more under Hegel's spell than Kant's, for Hegel's civilization traveled from east to west as time went on, leading to the legitimate dominance of European societies over the rest of the world. Kant's perspective is an entirely contrary one. He, he finds the supposed advanced civilizations of Europe worse in their savagery than many of the supposed barbarian nations themselves. And in praising Japan and China for their resistance to Western entry and commerce, indicates that those countries may ultimately have the resources in them themselves to advance enlightenment. Above all, Kant doesn't provide license for European visitors to presume the superiority of their systems of economy and government and to impose them on native populations. Even if the native inhabitants wish to remain in a state of nature, Kant accepts that if that is their choice, then their voice should be respected. All that European visitors can ask in such circumstances is that they are not treated with hostility when they try to make contact. They can neither insist on entering nor, least of all, establishing a colony for themselves. Kant insists on the right of the usual inhabitants of a territory to make the moves they wish to make in their own time and in their own way. He's unlikely to have welcomed the cheap prices of commodities as the heavy artillery with which to batter down the opposition of the indigenous people. Kant, unlike Marx, is not prepared to sanction any means to a good end. Unlike Marx's false progressivism, Kant takes a tolerant view of those who wish to retain their traditional methods of production. Since as long as they keep within their boundaries, the way they want to live on their own land is up to their own discretion. Kant holds no brief for imposing capitalism on other territories, as this demonstrates. 
He says, can two neighboring peoples or families resist each other in adopting a certain use of land? For example, can a hunting people resist the pasturing people or a farming people? Or the latter resist the people that wants to plant orchards and so forth? Certainly, he says. So there's no inexorable progress that uh, over overweighs the internal political social arrangements of the people's concern. Turn then to my conclusion. With some notable exceptions, uh, and the room is full of these notable exceptions, Kant's view on colonialism have not received the attention they deserve. Just as the case with his views on political improvement in general, his provocative and novel ideas against unrestricted European expansion have remained curiously hidden. They've been hidden on the right by conservative and neoliberal thinkers who believe in the superiority of European civilization, and hidden on the left by radicals who have pursued modernization too relentlessly. The Marxist perspective has in particular obscured Kant's vision in its ruthless commitment to centralist modernization. Kant's evolutionary path to progress, wedded to a patient gradualism and the commitment never to treat people solely as means but always also as ends, now merits our closest attention. The major tension in Kant's theory of colonialism arises from his support for individuals in this state of nature to establish a state by no force if necessary, and his denial of the right to outside powers to inaugurate these forces themselves in territories where a state doesn't exist. Kant acknowledges in his general political theory the duty of individuals to emerge in this state of nature, but stresses in his critique of colonialism that this process cannot be hurried along by outside agents. For Kant to impose a state on other peoples, where they themselves do not come to the realization that such a step is necessary, is to act contrary to cosmopolitan right. Principle of hospitality doesn't allow visitors to create institutions without the agreement of the present inhabitants of territories. The tension that arises from this view is that visitors, visitors have to abide by laws that are not recognized by the native inhabitants and that native inhabitants have to permit access when they may know nothing of such a rule. But for Kant, it's better to suffer this tension than for the European states and their subjects to believe that they are the inescapable agents of progress. People should, not, should enter the civil condition at their own pace and in response to their own recognition of the need to do so. Arguably, therefore, the major tension in Kant's theory of colonialism is also one of its main strengths. Kant's hostility to paternalism Hostility shaped by the Enlightenment makes him a champion of native rights. Thank you.